Well, welcome everybody. We are glad you are with us from all over the world here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy. I'm Father Chris Alar, one of the Miriam priests, and we are uh, in a somber yet respectful and prayerful mood as today is the 20th anniversary. 20 years ago today, the streets of New York, Manhattan were in such an unrest. And as you could see from the slide, today's talk is going to be on forgiveness, uh, the Christian meaning and what we need to know. In fact, what forgiveness is, what forgiveness is not. That's a big, important part. And the story of 9-11, and even a video here that we're going to start with before our prayer, that I will give you an idea of why we're discussing this today. And normally I put the video towards the middle or the end, but we're going to start with the video right away today. And then I'm going to come back and read a few things. But I think let's start with the video. Let's get this off of what's been on so many hearts for so long out into the open so that we can pray and we can forgive and we can try to understand. Let us watch this video of 9-11. came in like a missile, like a fireball missile across from the New York Harbor side, I guess from the Newark direction. It came in like a spear. It just speared through the building like a fireball. You know, you can see the, the cut of the, uh, the incision into the, into the um, building. And then it was when I was heading down on 27, just about 27, didn't hear an explosion. All of a sudden, the staircase moved and a crack in the wall appeared, maybe about six or eight inches. I kept on looking at the numbers coming down the stairwell, 15, 14 counting, and then I actually thought, I can make it, I can make it. When I got out, I looked like I've never, I've never seen war up close, but today I have. You know, I said, that's gonna go down like the first one. And it came down and it was just this sound, this rumble and this mass cloud coming at us. It was intense. Um, at that point, we decided just to get out of there. People were just going crazy at that point, evacuating. Wow, there's not a lot of words to say after seeing a video like that. 
But I want to read something, as I mentioned, before we open our prayer. I found this online. 20 years ago, on September the 10th, which was yesterday, 246 people went to sleep in preparation for their morning flights. 2,606 people went to sleep in preparation for work the next morning. 343 firefighters went to sleep in preparation for their morning shift. 60 police officers went to sleep in preparation for their morning patrol. Eight paramedics went to sleep in preparation for their morning shift. But not one of these people I just mentioned saw past 10 a.m. on September the 11th, 2001. In one single moment, life was never the same. As you live and enjoy the breaths you take, Tonight, before you go to sleep, in preparation for your life tomorrow, kiss the ones you love, snuggle a little tighter, and never take one second of your life for granted. Let us begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, on this day, a day of somber remembrance, a day of prayer. We ask for your mercy upon all those souls who died in 9-11. We especially ask that you console their families, help them piece together their lives. For those who have died, we pray that your mercy, even on those who had unprepared, were unprepared for death, may bring them to eternal life. And we ask all this through the intercession of St. Faustina and our Mother Mary, through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So when you watch a video like that, there's a lot of emotions. There's sadness, there's anger. And let's start with anger. You know, Thomas Aquinas said that anger is actually legitimate. It's a legitimate response to injustice. Martin Luther King was angered at the lack of rights for certain people based on their skin color. John Paul II was angered at the oppression of communism. Anger is a passion to set things right. Even the Bible says God got angry. Now, he's not a human like we are. Jesus is human in his nature. But God of the Old Testament is not, is we anthropomorphize sometimes. And so the Bible says that God was angered at injustice and sin. So should we. And 9-11 is the ultimate example of injustice and sin. Sin for the wickedness and the evil that was not only done, but was planned and perpetrated. And the sin that went into that and the injustice of the innocent lives that were lost. And so this is why anger can be justified. But 
Anger can also fall into one of the seven deadly sins. We have to be careful because it can become an unbalanced quest for revenge and vengeance. And we can't let that happen. Martin Luther King did not want to destroy white America. John Paul II did not want to destroy the people who were communist. They both wanted to live in harmony and find a ground based on God. So even in their anger, John Paul II and Martin Luther King loved their enemies. But boy, did they correct them. Chastisement even. Love is not a feeling. We think in today's world, oh, I'm no longer in love with you. That's what my knucklehead brother-in-law said to my sister after 24 years of marriage. I no longer feel the fireworks when you walk in the room. If you feel fireworks, every time somebody walks in the room after 24 years, you could be a case study, as I've said before. Love is not a feeling or an emotion. It's an act of the will. I choose to love you or not. It becomes sin, though, when we disorder it, our passions, this is why sexuality as recreation is disordered. That becomes sinful, and so can anger. Anger becomes a sin when we cling to it, not as loving correction of their, our enemy, but resentment. Did you see what they did to me? Remember what that person did to me? Oh, when I get my chance to get them back. I am not trying, in this case, to move to a better place. I'm clinging to it. Look how I was hurt though, Father. Yes. But when you cling to it like that, waiting for your opportunity for vengeance, it falls into a deadly sin. Forgiveness isn't just though what you think. Well, Father, you tell me I'm just supposed to forgive and forget. No. Forgiveness is not just forgiving and forgetting. It doesn't mean that we are never to be angry at injustice. As we said, God was. It means a willingness to order it correctly and to let it go. Let that person go. And here's the thing. Forgiveness doesn't mean you can't feel pain. A lot of people come to me and say, Father, I still feel this pain. I'm, I, I confess I'm, I'm, I'm unforgiving. No, you're not. The pain is natural. You might not feel pain. You might. But you have to, in fact, you may not even trust them again. <clears throat> Does forgiveness mean you have to trust a person? If a mother finds out that somebody abused her child, she's required to forgive that person, but she's also required to have due justice of the law. She's also required to not trust that man again with her child alone because then she's putting her child in danger. So father, you tell me I have to trust, I have to trust this person? No. We are telling you that you be prudent. Again, a mother is not going to trust her daughter who's been abused with that man again because that's putting her in harm's way. We need to understand forgiveness, yes, in terms of justice. If he abused the little girl, justice means to be for his own good, for rehabilitation, to get him off the street so he doesn't hurt somebody else. Forgiveness is along with justice. What is justice? Justice is giving somebody their due. 
So I'm not going to definitely say here, though, that all justice matches forgiveness because it doesn't. Forgiveness is a special kind. All right, if I was to summarize what justice is, it's basically when you owe somebody something. It's just that you pay me back. It is just that we worship God. Do you know religion? You know all these people who say we don't need organized religion. Do you know religion is actually under the virtue of justice? Religion is justice. I owe God my worship. You owe God your worship. God is due our worship. And so justice is giving somebody their due. Now, in the cases where somebody owes you an apology or money, forgiveness is basically letting go of that. Basically, it is an understanding that I'm not going to make you pay me back what you owe me. That's what Thomas Aquinas says. That's forgiveness. You owe me. I bailed you out. Now I want you to go do this for me. You owe me. Forgiveness, because you said that to me, you hurt me. Now you owe me and you got to go tell that person that this, that, or the other. You owe me. No, I'm going to let you go. That's forgiveness. Now this is what Aquinas says. I'm not going to make you pay me back what you owe me. What are you talking about, Father? Okay, go to the Bible. You know the parable of the wicked servant? This is a good one because he says, to the, he gets forgiven of his debt. Remember, the wicked servant has a big debt and the king forgives him. And then the servant turns right around and goes to a lowlier servant and starts choking him and says, pay me what you owe me. You remember this? And the servant chokes him and then the king finds out and the king's furious. And the king calls him in. He says, you wicked servant. I forgave you what you owed me. And it's a lot more. And you're going to this poor little lesser servant for a lot less money they owe you. And you're demanding it back. You wicked servant. Now I'm going to hold you due. I'm going to hold you accountable. So basically, forgiveness is I will release you from your debt. With God's grace, I'll let you go and I'm not going to try to make you pay me back. Not just money, could be reputation, it could be whatever. It gives you the freedom to let go, to move forward. I release you from your debt. This is what the church does. Everybody criticizes the church for plenary indulgences. Father, they used to sell them. Well, anything can be abused. A computer can be abused. Uh, a TV can be abused. I can use it to watch a religious program on God, or I could use it to watch pornographic material. It's, it's all in how we use it. And the indulgences given by the church back in the Middle Ages were misused, yeah, by some priests, not all, very few. But the gift, you know what an indulgence is? An indulgence is saying the church, through her authority given by Jesus, is saying you're released of everything you owe back to God. When you sin, you're forgiven in the confessional. But you might forget when you come out of that confessional, you're owe, you owe God more than just him forgiving you for the sin. You owe him back punishment. That's, that's what church teaching has been for 2,000 years. When we're forgiven in the confessional, that's great. But when we come out, we still have temporal punishment, a.k.a. purgatory, that's due to cleanse us, to purify us, break our attachments. A plenary indulgence is the church saying, we're, God's letting that go because she has the authority to do that. Christ gave her that authority.
the year of mercy back that Pope Francis declared. That's letting go of all of our debts to God in terms of punishment for our sins. God wipes our slate clean. It's basically, you wanna know what forgiveness is? Wiping your slate clean. Now, our holiness though is based on what we do, not what we feel. And so we have to understand, let's look at our next cross or our next slide. Here's Jesus on the cross. Does it look like Jesus is feeling good here? Does it look like Jesus is feeling good? Well, Father, I just don't feel I can forgive this person. I don't think Jesus feels like forgiving his executioners right there. Look at his agony. Look at his pain. I don't think he feels like doing that. He probably feels like getting off of that cross. But love is an act of the will. He decided to stay upon it and made the decision to forgive his executioners. He died so we could have the sacraments and prepare for a death like his so that we could rise with him. Now, what about people like those in 9-11 who died without preparing? Do you know, they don't seem to have had a happy death. Of course not. They didn't seem like they were prepared. You see those videos? There's many people who weren't prepared. You know, next slide is a picture of my book. It's called After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You, but don't let the title fool you. It's really a book about any tragedy that you have to deal with, any lost loved one that has died for any reason, not just suicide, but car accident, cancer, natural cause, natural death. And this book basically explains what Jesus told St. Faustina. I'm outside of time. Your prayers helped me in the agony of the garden. Now, wait a minute here. Jesus is telling St. Faustina that her prayers 1,900 years after the agony in the garden helped console him. How's this possible? She lived 1,900 years after Jesus. Yet Jesus said, your prayers and the prayers of priests and religious help console me in the garden. There was no priest or religious when he was in the garden. St. Faustina was 1,900 years in the future because God is outside of time. There's no past for God. There's no future for God. God sees everything at one big eternal present moment. He sees everything, past, present, and future all at once. So do you know that that prayer we just made for those people who died on 9-11 will be used by God to be given to them for grace, for their salvation at the moment of their judgment. Father, that's crazy. They were judged the moment they died. Yes, but because God is outside of time, it wasn't 20 years ago at this very minute. 11.20 a.m. this very minute, 20 years ago, 2,000, over 2,900 people were dying. Not one will, will not be given the opportunity by God and through the help of our prayers right now. Father, you're crazy. This is 20 years later. You think you can limit God? God is outside of time. And our prayers even 20 years later 
given right now that we just did for all those people who died unprepared in 9-11 are like placed in Mary's hands and can be brought back, showered upon those souls at the moment of their judgment. Now we can't get them out of hell. There is once you're in hell, that's eternal. We're not saying that we can change history. We can't pray that the Twin Towers never got bombed and never fell. We can't do that. But what we can do is place it into God. And once our prayers become eternal, those prayers can be showered upon these people to help them. That if they say yes to God at that moment, 20 years ago, this minute, they can still receive his grace and mercy. You think that I'm making this up? Go to the diary of St. Faustina. Turn to paragraph 1486. Jesus says that I come to every soul three times at the moment of their judgment. And all your prayers can be then showered upon the soul at that moment. It doesn't matter to God that it's 20 years later. And it could be any one of your loved ones that you can do this for. You know, the Padre Pio example is a great one. Padre Pio said, he was very clear, this is documented. Padre Pio was being evaluated by his doctor and he was giving him an exam and his doctor noticed Padre Pio was praying and Padre Pio, the doctor asked him, what are you praying for? And Padre Pio said, the happy death, the conversion and happy death of my grandfather. And the doctor said, well, I knew your grandfather. He died, get this, 20 years ago. This is unbelievable. 20 years ago, that doctor said to Padre Pio, I knew your doctor, he died. And Padre Pio said, I know. But my, but he said, Padre Pio answered the doctor, but God knew 20 years ago that I'd be here tonight making this prayer and he will accept those prayers offered to that soul to help them with grace. Now that doesn't come from us. The grace doesn't come from us. The grace is from God to even do this. But God has always chosen to work through each other. That's why we're part of the body of Christ. Because God is outside of time. That's the whole essence of the mass. The mass is outside of time. And so this whole concept is fascinating, but it gives us an idea of how powerful God is. And God wants everybody to be saved. Since he's eternal, he can receive our prayers right now and apply them. And all that soul has to do is say yes. You can't say yes for them. Father, you're telling me that it doesn't matter what they did, they reject God, I can save them. No, you can't save them. Only God can. You're just a tool. You're just an instrument. He desires the salvation of everyone. So he's going to take even your prayers and help that soul. So we may assist anyone and everyone in history with a happy death. Pray to St. Joseph. That prayer we just made right now for those people, God can take that prayer, shower it upon them. I was watching videos last night, putting this all together and watching those videos of those people jumping from the towers. Oh my. I can't even imagine the terror. I don't even like being on a ladder. I don't like heights. Even being on a ladder, I get at the edge of a roof up on a house and I was shingling my roof with my dad years ago and I was like, I didn't want to do the ones on the edge. It's how much I don't like heights. And so we go through here 
And so this book that I had Brother Mark, let's put it back on the screen, is a great example to explain all this. Suicideandhope.com. This is my book. It's again about suicide because that's a story of my grandma. But you want to see this whole understanding, get this book. You can go to suicideandhope.com. And there you can enter in the names of your loved ones. I personally pray for them. And you can get this book that explains this concept. It's not just about suicide. And so this is important. And so God, you know, does this sound impossible? Well, it might, but with God, all things are possible. Matthew 19. Yes, in and of itself, evil is, suffering is evil. In and of itself, suffering is evil. But because of the incarnation, Jesus becoming a man, suffering is now redemptive. Because of Jesus, our sufferings can be elevated now from just burdens and inconveniences and annoyances into gifts of grace. This way we celebrate coming up. I'm going to talk about this at the end. This is a big week. At the end of this talk, I want to just briefly talk about two things coming up next week. Did you know this Tuesday and Wednesday? The exaltation of the cross is Tuesday and Our Lady of Sorrows is Wednesday. The time of the fact that this anniversary happened on the Saturday before those two feasts, amazing. Let's talk about that. You know, Jesus took one of the worst methods of torture ever devised by man, the cross, and transformed it into grace. So our daily suffering can also transmit grace to those who died unprepared death. If you offer up those sufferings, for your loved ones who have died. Father Kaz, I didn't know this. Do you know Father Kaz lost his cousin in the Twin Towers? I didn't know that. I texted him this morning. I was like, I didn't know that, Father Kaz. A good friend of ours, Marie, texted me to tell me that. So we've lost loved ones, whether in 9-11 or not. So our daily sufferings, take the agony that you had to go through getting here. Take the agony of your backache, your headache, the trouble from your children and offer it up. We can help souls that have taken their own life this way. That's the whole premise of the book. I think of Mark Mastery, our beloved employee this year who took his life. Our sufferings transformed by grace can help anyone who has passed away, even if they were out of the reach of a priest. Now, if they're within the reach of a priest, that's the best thing. But you can help. By virtue of your baptism, you actually are a priest, not a ministerial priest, but you share in the common priesthood of Christ. You know, my theologian, Chris Sparks here, who does a lot of my reference checking and my theology looking and making sure everything's correct and everything, he made a, a statement. He did a piece on 9-11. I want to quote some things he said here. You know, he, he asked that famous question, how could Jesus, how could God let this happen? And he said, in some ways, the fact that if you ask that question, if you're angry, God, how could you let this happen? In some ways, it shows that you have faith. In some ways, it shows you have faith. Now, show God you're upset. He can take it. He went through a lot worse than your anger. 
God's great gift of free will, in fact, his greatest gift of free will, people ask, how could this happen? Father, why did God allow this to happen? Because our greatest gift God ever gave us is free will. But when he gave us free will, he took the risk, the greatest risk, that we'd use that free will to hurt others and turn against him. So we have to deal with evil. Evil's a reality of this world. It won't be in the next because we're still dealing with sin. If we continue to sin, we will absolutely still have evil in the world. Evil's a consequence of sin. Why? Because sin is defined as a lack of the good. And when we sin, we remove God. That's why you got to go to confession if you're in the state of mortal sin. You can't come to communion because if you're in the state of mortal sin, you have, you have pushed God out of your soul. God doesn't want to leave your soul. You close the door. But God is not going to bust the door down. He's going to gently knock. He's not going to come in with a sledgehammer and bust it down and say, I'm forcing my way into your heart. Now, sometimes, though, he may do it through suffering. A great quote by Fulton Sheen was, sometimes God has to break hearts in order to get inside them. That's a great quote. But basically, this is something we don't understand. Yes, evil is going to happen. We're going to have to deal with evil because we have sinned. We have been given great gifts, but if we use them for evil, we face the consequences like a plane, wickedly being driven into a tower. Evil has happened and will happen, which will result in suffering throughout the rest of our time on earth. It'll give birth to the Antichrist. And in the end of the world, though, and here's what's powerful, there will seem a time when all is lost, when the church will seem to be silent, maybe even now, defeated, dead, even now, maybe it kind of seems like that, doesn't it? Evil will have its say. Evil will have its say. And it's going to take a lot of souls with it. The problem is we have to prevent as many souls. People always say to me, Father, why are you so, why are you so into what you're doing? God wins the battle anyway. Yes, he does. But every battle has casualties. And our job is to minimize the souls that are lost before this battle is over. We know God will win it. But how many casualties is the question. And our job is to stop those losses of souls before the end. So evil will have its say, but in the end, at the end of our lives, at the end of time, God will have his say. Blessed are they who mourn for they will be comforted, Matthew 5. So terrorism is an example of this. Terrorism is the example of the intellect and the will of, of these terrorists being disfigured and disordered by sin, by original sin. And we need to fight this. No, I'm not talking about picking up a gun necessarily, but I'm talking about like the Catholic Christians, following in those before us. We must fight in the reality, fight this fact that the reality of terrorism is of the devil. It's not of God. But how do you fight the devil? Do you grab a gun? No. You fight the devil with virtue, sanctity, grace, holiness. That's why the devil feels Mary even more than God, humility. 
He can halfway understand being whooped up on by God, but to be beaten by a 15-year-old Jewish girl, that's way too much for his pride. What did Paul say? Quote, for our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities, with powers, with the world rulers of this present darkness. That's interesting, isn't it? With the world rulers of this present darkness, with the evil spirits. That's who Paul says our battle's with. We fight how? How do we fight that? Father, how do I engage that battle? Here, the church teaches you fight it with first and foremost This is surprising. The church lists the first way to fight evil. I would have thought was prayer. And of course, I think that goes together. You know what the church says is the first thing you fight it with? Forgiveness. Man, you want to talk about throwing somebody on their back. Have somebody do something rotten to you and comes up to your face to finish you off. And you love them. And you look at them. And you extend your hand out for a handshake. Or you put your hand on their shoulder and tell them you love them. You talk about disarming the enemy. You don't need a gun to do that. So we fight with forgiveness and prayer, yes. Pray for our enemies with works of mercy. Are you all doing your works of mercy? Keep doing those works of mercy every day. We can change the world with that. We fight with friendship, loyalty, and love of our brethren with grace. And how do you get grace? Well, I asked God for it. Okay. Yeah, you can. But if you're full of sin, there's no way for God to get that grace in there. How do you get grace? There's only one guaranteed way. Now you can get grace many ways. God can give you singular graces. God can give you what he wants. But if your heart is full of sin, even if he wants to, you're blocking it. Not because of him, because of you. What's the only guaranteed way to get grace? There's only one. There's only one guaranteed way to get grace. And it's not saying, Lord, give me grace. There's only one guaranteed way, and that's the sacraments. Because you are asking God to give you their grace. But when you go to confession and you clear out the junk, that opens up the way for God to fill you with grace. We fight as Jesus did, as St. Faustina did, by becoming the means through which divine mercy floods the world, transforming hearts, minds, and love into love and lives, defeating the enemies of humanity, not by guns, but by goodness by turning to them and forgiving. Father, this sounds crazy. Yes, the church does allow self-defense. I come from a military family. I'm not one of those people that goes to the funeral of a beautiful soldier killed in Afghanistan and protests it. You want to kill somebody who is bad or even evil? That's a natural tendency. You really want to kill them? You want to kill those terrorists? Well, they already killed themselves, but you want to kill somebody who's evil like that? Kill them with love and kindness. That'll kill them. Disarm them. Hmm. So take up our weapons. What are our weapons? Not the gun. Remember, I told the story before about the bishop in Nigeria who said, Lord, we can't take this anymore. And, and he, the Boko Haram, the Islamic terrorists were, were terrorizing them. And Jesus appeared to him with a sword. And he said, finally, we're going to take up arms. 
And Jesus handed him the sword and the, the bishop went to grab the sword and it turned into a rosary. That's powerful. So we pick up our weapons of warfare, the rosary, the chaplet, the divine mercy image, the stations of the cross, prayer at three o'clock, offering up your sufferings, work of, works of mercy, and most of all, the graces from the church, which is the sacraments. Powerful stuff. Bring the Holy Spirit to all ends of the earth even to the hearts and minds of jihadists. It may seem impossible. Father, you're living in a fantasy land. You think that's true? Talk to the earlier missionaries who also went to places like right here down the road from us at the North American Martyr Shrine. Ask Isaac Jogues if it's impossible. The Mohawks, the Hurons, pagan, knew nothing of God, didn't want anything to do with God, cut his thumbs off. But out of that came St. Kateri, the lily of the Mohawks, and many conversions, saved many souls. Tell, tell Isaac Jodes it's impossible. Those Indians were the current day terrorists of their time. I love Native American culture. I love it. I, I love their respect of nature and the, and the, and the, and the outdoors. And I, I love and I respect their people and their nation and their history. But how beautiful those who saw the message of Isaac Jogues and came to Christ. And so let's go here now and go to John Paul II. The, here's what John Paul II said. The limit opposed upon evil of which man is both perpetrator and victim is only divine mercy. It's the only answer. Divine mercy, like praying the chaplet, is more urgent than ever because the body of Christ right now is under attack and he's bleeding. The body of Christ is hemorrhaging. The heart of Christ is wounded. This is why we must console the heart of Jesus. We always go to prayer, Lord, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. And here's poor Jesus on the cross saying, I do too. I need you to console me. That's what the whole consoling the heart of Jesus is about. And so we look at this. And so this is why Jesus' heart is wounded. Here's what the Holy Father recently said. Let's look at our next slide. This is divine mercy. Here is the image of divine mercy. For those of you in the church, it's this image right behind the altar. Here's what the Holy Father said, John Paul II. When asked how we can obtain victory over the enemies of the church. Do you know John Paul II was asked that? How do we obtain victory over these enemies of the church? And John Paul II said through venerating the divine mercy image. Quote, this is from the diary he quoted, which actually the words of Jesus. I promise that the soul that has venerated this image will not perish. Listen to this. I also promise victory over its enemies already here on earth and especially at the hour of death. I myself will defend it as my own glory. 
Jesus gives us the answer. All right. Let's talk about September 11th. Let's go to our next slide. 9-11. Wow. One of the famous questions is why, we just asked it a minute ago, why would God allow such evil and suffering? And one of the answers is because he gives us free will. And when he gives us free will, there's the consequence of our actions. But even when we choose evil, God wants to bring a greater good out of it. What greater evil was there than nailing our very creator to a tree and draining him of his blood? What greater good came out of that? Our redemption. What horrible evil was 9-11? But God wants to bring a greater good. I'll give you a couple examples. Did you see that story that's going around right now? Brother Mark sent it to me. The story of the firefighter in New York City that was on ground zero at 9-11 is now a priest. Changed his life. Marie Romagnano, a good friend of our religious community. She's a nurse. She wanted to get the nurses down to ground zero at 9-11. When it was happening, she's like, we got to get down there. They couldn't get in. She's like, the nurses got to be down there to help. She realized at that moment that she couldn't physically do anything. So what did Marie Romagnano do? She realized that spiritually, spiritually, she could do something. Spiritually. And so she started the healthcare professionals of divine mercy. This is a group that now cares for the spiritual needs of patients. We think so much of the physical needs of patients that we forget the spiritual needs of patients. She brought together a group. And by the way, they have a, a very uh, a big conference. You can join us on November 5th, 6th, and 7th. You can visit our website, thedivinemercy.org. There's a banner up top. You can click on it. Um, or visit thedivinemercy.org slash healthcare, and you can go to that conference virtually. But they realize that the spiritual care of the patient is every bit, if not more important than the physical. That's so important. So these are the kind of good things that came out of 9-11. Now, another thing that came out of it, and I told the story, was... The following Sunday, remember 9-11 was on a Tuesday. And on the following Sunday, the churches were full. Many people came back to church that day and never left. I know some great people or some fabulous parishioners at my old parish in North Carolina that came back because of 9-11 and never left. That's why God can bring a greater good. But you know, I told the story on my talk on Islam a while ago, so you may have heard this, but I think it's worth mentioning was the homily that day changed my life. The homily was one like I've never heard. The church was packed. You couldn't get in. It was out into the sidewalk. And this priest comes in and he says, we, you know, we all know what happened on Tuesday. And, and he asked the people, how many people are praying for the victims? And everybody raised their hand. He said, how many people are praying for the families? And everybody raised their hand. 
He said, how many people are praying for the perpetrators? And I think none or maybe two. But I remember basically nobody raised their hands. And you could just feel something like I've never felt ever in my life. Here are the souls closest to hell, these terrorists, for the wicked that they did, the evil. But we are still obligated to pray for them. We are still obligated to forgive them. Now, does that mean that you're going to take that one that survived that didn't get on the plane and welcome into your home and, and join him in his mission or something? No, that's ridiculous. But the priest said this. This is what separates Christianity from all other religions. We don't want them in hell. How many of you, he said, would be willing to die for what you thought was the will of God? Now, this, isn't, this is kind of a tough question because they're still responsible for not following the natural law. God still puts on every heart in the natural law that killing is wrong. And so therefore, they are, they are wrong. They are, they're, they're mentally they're misguided by sin, evil, Satan. But he asked that question, how many of you would be willing to die for what you thought was the will of God? And nobody raised their hand. I think that's the question we got to ask here. As misguided, misinformed, sinful, and evil as they were, there's still a shred of goodness in there. I know you're all going to write me, how dare I say there is any goodness? Every human being created by God has a sliver of goodness. Even if they don't act on it, we have to pray that they will when Jesus came to them because they met him. We can even pray now, as crazy as it seems, that those terrorists would even say yes and accept God's mercy. Father, they deserve to rot in hell. You know what? Every one of us, deserves to rot in hell. Maybe I didn't strap a bomb to myself and blow somebody up, but I could give you a list of a thousand other things that I have done. Gossip, anger, impatience, lust, greed, gluttony. I can go on and on. Those all would deserve me hell. But yet God is so merciful. He frees us. Pray for their conversion, not their damnation. Even current terrorists today, pray for their conversion, not their, 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 um, their uh, damnation. Jesus said this is the most pleasing prayer of all to him. Do you know what Jesus said in the diary to St. Faustine? Of all the prayers we could make, Father, uh, God, Father, God the Father, I need this. I need to pass my exam. I need to get my back feeling better. I need my daughter to stop using drugs. All those are beautiful prayers. But you know what Jesus says? The best prayer there is, the very best, the conversion of sinners. And he says, that's what you're supposed to do at the three o'clock hour. A baptized Catholic sitting on the couch, not living a moral life, engrossed in sin, yet condemning to hell what happened on 9-11 is natural. 
but may end up condemning them. They're not living a moral life. They're not open to the sacraments. They're not following God. They're not praising God. They're not going to church. They're not receiving grace, but yet they're going to condemn another person to hell. That soul may be in just as much or more danger. I know this sounds crazy, but God's ways aren't our ways. So let's talk a little bit about why the terrorists picked 9-11. I did a video on Thursday, so I'm not going to talk a lot about this. I'm just going to kind of summarize it. You can find it online. I go into more detail about this. But the 9-11 date, September the 11th, is very significant why this date was picked. You may have heard this story from me. I've told it a time or two in the past, but I think it's worth mentioning today. Again, I'll shorten it. I'll summarize it. Back in 1683, September the 11th was the height of Islamic power. Let's show our next slide. But the next day, it all came tumbling down. Literally. At the Battle of Vienna. There's the slide. After assuming that they were going to be victorious at Vienna, the Muslim Sultan said his next step was to march into Rome and conquer St. Peter's. The battle where they were defeated by the Christians, marked the end of Muslim expanse in Europe. 90,000 Christians defeated by what some people say was as many as 300,000 Islamic fighters. From this victory, we get the feast of the holy name of Mary. Why? Because, next slide, Jan Sobieski, this is my dad's new hero when he found out the story, was a Polish priest and king and nobody else would rise up to defend Christendom. Now remember, self-defense is allowed. But Father, you just said not to pick up guns. Yes, that's not where we start. We start with the rosary, forgiveness, works of mercy, sacraments. But the catechism does allow at a certain point, when all else has failed, when all else has been exhausted, you have a moral obligation to protect your family and your neighbor from terrorism and from evil. The catechism teaches this. So Jan Sobieski was the only one to stand up and fought in the Battle of Vienna to stop Islam from overtaking and destroying Christendom. He entrusted the battle to Mary. And as they rode down the hill on Calvary, they were shouting, Our Lady of Chestahova. This is where we get the feast of the holy name of Mary because they were yelling the name of Mary. The Pope and the European leaders hailed him as the savior of Western civilization. Isn't that funny? The savior that you've never heard of. The day was commemorated in Vienna by creating a new pastry called the croissant. And so let's look at our next slide. This is the croissant next to the Turkish flag. It's a half moon shape. The Turkish flag is a half moon with a star. The croissant is a half moon. And so this croissant was created looking like the crest of the Turkish flag. And they ate it. Marie Antoinette, people think, was French. She actually was born in Vienna. She's the one who took the pastry to France in 1770. And it was eaten along with coffee to commemorate the victory over the Turks. Now, what's funny is that where did coffee come from? Coffee was not known in Europe until this time. It was found in the abandoned tents of the Turks at the Battle of Vienna. 
the Turks fled and they left the coffee. And Sobieski found these coffee bags with the beans. I'm wondering how did these Turks fight day and night? It was caffeine. It was caffeine. So the beans that were in these bags, these coffee bags came from Ethiopia, which was one African country that remained Christian. And so the Muslims who called the Christians infidels, right? You know, we're called infidels by Muslims. And the word is kafir. That's the word where we get the word coffee. It comes from kafir, which means you infidels. So the Islamics called us infidels, the Christians infidels, and that word for them is kafir, and from that word kafir comes coffee. It's fascinating. So legend has it that Pope Clement VIII was told to declare this drink, coffee, the drink of the devil, because it came from these Islamics. It's the drink of the devil. Condemn it, Pope. And so he, legend has it that he tasted it. And he said, the devil's drink is so good, we should cheat the devil by baptizing it. <laughs> and after the victory of Vienna, another Polish general opened Vienna's first coffee house. That's why Vienna today is known as the capital of coffee. But does anybody tell you this story? We don't hear this. And I want to finish with forgiveness because people will say, well, Father, you're describing the battle. How do I forgive this? It's been nonstop. We Christians have been attacked and attacked and attacked. I've been attacked and attacked and attacked. My own relatives attack, attack, attack. How do I forgive? I can't forgive that. Well, forgiveness isn't as hard as you think. To forgive means to give up resentment. To like forgive an insult, for instance, to grant relief if from a payment. That's what I described to you earlier. If you look up forgiveness in the dictionary, even if you didn't understand what I was saying earlier, what do you mean, Father, to let it go, to, 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 to give up the debt? That's the definition, to grant relief from payment of a debt. That means forgive. So the Catholic view is not to wish ill upon them, but to let them go and wish them well, even though you don't have to reconcile. How can you forgive? How can I forgive, Father? There are some myths about forgiveness. It's not as hard as you think. I haven't done this talk in five years, but I think it's perfect right now. What are some of the myths about forgiveness that will make it easier for you to forgive? Myth number one, forgiveness requires reconciliation and remaining friends. False. Forgiveness is a long way in the dictionary and in life from reconciliation. To reconcile means to restore friendship. You don't necessarily have to. It's good if you do. If you do, that's actually better than forgiveness. It's called mercy. So I want to try to get you all to do that. But start with forgiveness. So like I said, that woman whose daughter's abused by somebody, she's not going to be friends with that guy and invite him back over to dinner where he could harm her again. So in a relationship where one person won't accept that they have wronged the other, you can't have harmony. If your friend has wronged you and refuses to accept that and doesn't even talk to you about it and is totally disregarding of it, there may not be a friendship possibility out of that. If you know that your friend thinks that they did nothing wrong in spreading rumors about you or saying something that you told them in confidence 
and breaking your confidence, they'll just do it again. You don't necessarily have to entrust them with that. You don't have to risk telling them your secrets after that again. You don't have to be their best friends. Well, Father, I have to forgive them. So now I got to go tell them the rest of my story. No, you don't. Forgiveness depends on me. Reconciliation depends on both of us. You see? So even if they don't reconcile or they don't want to be reconciled, you still have to forgive. Well, God requires me to forgive unconditionally. For instance, the business partner that I had, that's, or not my partner, as an employee that stole $2,000 from me. He does require me to forgive him, but he does not require that I keep him employed. You can bet I fired him. Period. I lost $2,000 and I forgave him, but I fired him. The problem still has to be addressed. If not, it's license. It's false mercy. If you say, yeah, you robbed my, my relative blind, but Father Chris says, I have to allow that. So you can go do it again. No. All right, myth number two. Forgiveness means forgetting what happened. You ever hear that expression, forgive and forget? False. First, we don't have to pretend that we are not hurt. This is not forgiveness. This is lying. The human mind is amazing, but it doesn't have the ability to forget at will. Forgiveness is not denying the reality of your pain. It's not letting it own you. Myth number three, forgiveness requires release from the consequences. Does not require it. Again, going back to the example of a man who abused a daughter, she's obligated to have the police get involved. She can't just say, I release you from the consequences. You sexually abused my little girl. No, there's consequences. Legally, this has got to be addressed. Someone who says, well, you know what? I'm sincerely sorry. I repent of my actions. I'll never do it again. Let me go away. No, you did a great crime. For instance, do I get to keep the money that I stole because I apologized? The guy that stole $2,000 from me, he apologized, but I need the $2,000 back. What is repentance worth if you get to keep the money? You just keep doing it. You say you're sorry. I think it's one of the misconceptions of confession. Some of us sometimes think that, you know what? I want to enjoy this sin. I'll just go and confess it tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. That's presumption. Bad sin. If I don't return what I stole or make some amends for it, my repentance is hollow and meaningless. I'll have no intention to turn from the behavior in the future. In confession, I've had people come to me and they say, Father, I stole. I say, well, can you give the money back? I don't have it or I no longer work there or I'm on another, I live in another state now. Well, you can do something else. If you're a current employee and you don't want to get fired, you can work extra hours to make back for the money that you took from your company. When Zacchaeus repented of stealing from the Jews in the Bible by inflating their taxes, what did he say? He offered to pay it back fourfold. People can be forgiven and still have to pay for the consequences of their actions. It's called purgatory. 
God forgives us and still holds us accountable that we have to be purified from our attachments. The wound is healed, that's forgiveness, but the scar can remain and we owe back for that. That's what happens in the confessional. You need three things for valid confession. You have to confess all grave sins you can remember. You must have some sorrow or contrition, even a little bit, but you must do satisfaction. Penance. So if I, if I confess murdering somebody and the priest says, well, do one Hail Mary, that's probably not enough. I probably really got to do some serious fasting and works of charity and things like that. All right, myth number four. If they are not sorry, I should not forgive. Ah, false. If someone stole from you and did not repent, yeah, they may not remain your friend, but do you still need to forgive them? Absolutely. You probably can't restore the relationship, but you need to forgive. Repentance and remorse are needed to receive forgiveness. Repent and remorse on their end is not needed to give forgiveness. This is important. You're not likely to hear the person at the grocery store who jumped in front of you in line turn around and say, oh, gee, I'm really sorry for doing that to you. Probably not. But you can still forgive them. Maybe they're in a hurry. Maybe their husband's at the hospital and they're trying to get the medicine there. But you can forgive. Your repentance is necessary, though, to receive God's forgiveness and restore relationship. And it's also necessary for reconciliation. But their repentance isn't necessary to grant forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the most, unforgiveness, I should say, is one of the most serious sins because God can't forgive us if we don't forgive others. Forgiveness is needed, important, because on the natural level, we couldn't exist as a world without forgiveness. If we all went and sought revenge against any person who's ever harmed us, we'd all be dead because we would have killed each other. You gotta have forgiveness. Societies can't exist without it. Mercy though, takes things to a higher level. Mercy is reconciling with that person who hurts you. Remember Maria Goretta? She was the saint that died when the man knifed and raped her. And her mother didn't just forgive the guy, she reconciled back, they became friends. That's mercy. That's why mercy is actually greater than forgiveness. You are required to forgive, but you want to take it to a new level? Be merciful. To forgive is, this is my phrase, this phrase, you know that phrase, to err is human and to forgive is divine? False. To forgive is human. We can't exist without forgiveness. The world would stop. We'd kill each other. To have mercy is divine. That's where you reconcile. That's why the sacrament is called the sacrament of reconciliation, not the sacrament of forgiveness. Because God doesn't, just doesn't say, I forgive you, now get out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. God brings you in, says, I forgive you, and then throws his arms around you and brings you into himself and reconciles with you. That's why we call it the sacrament of reconciliation. That's why mercy is greater than forgiveness. Forgiveness is just saying, okay, I forgive you, but get out of here. That's what I did with my employee. I forgave him, but get out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. That's the minimum. 
But if I really want to be merciful, like God is in the confessional, not only do I forgive, I reconcile back and that is mercy. But sometimes it's not prudent, like in the case of abuse. Now, this is interesting because God doesn't just forgive us. As I said, he's mercy. Now, no matter how much someone has hurt you or owes you, you have hurt God and owe God more. I promise. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. No matter how much God has hurt or uh, you have been hurt or somebody owes you has hurt you, you have hurt God and owe God more. So forgiveness, yes, it's one of the hardest works of mercy and one of the greatest challenges of being a Christian, but it's also one of the most important according to Jesus. So to summarize, what is forgiveness? It's letting go and not wishing the ill on the other, wishing them well. What's the definition of love? Willing the good of the other. That's why love and forgiveness go hand in hand. Forgiveness is letting go and not wishing ill. Love is willing the good. They go together. So always, always address the problem. Yes, don't let somebody get away with a crime, but be loving, wishing them no harm, wishing them grace. But can we do this with the terrorists? Can we really do that with the terrorists? They're our enemies. They hate Christians. I got a lot of letters about that after my talk with Islam. Father, they're satanic. They hate Christians. They want to kill us. Yeah, it's a Christian heresy. Atrocities, wrong. Misunderstanding of the natural law. But what are we supposed to do? Let's, how about I not answer that question? Let's let Jesus and St. Faustina answer that question. Let's go to our next slide. St. Faustina, Jesus said to me, my pupil, have great love for those who cause you suffering. This is Jesus talking to St. Faustina. Do good to those who hate you. I answered, this is why I love St. Faustina. She's so real. I answered, oh, my master, you see very well that I feel no love for them. It's almost like the terrorists. And that troubles me. And Jesus answered, it is not always within your power to control your feelings. That's why the world is so wacky now. It's only about feelings. It's about, not about logic or truth. It's only about feelings. Wrong. That's why Jesus said it's not always within your power to control your feelings. You will recognize that you have love if after having experienced annoyance and contradiction, you do not lose your peace, but pray for those who have made you suffer and wish them well. Paragraph 1628 of the diary. You want to see a wake-up call? Read that on 9-11. Hmm. We don't have to go farther than scripture. Let's read our next slide. Jesus said in scripture, this is Matthew 5, verse 43. You shall love your neighbor. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your heavenly father, for he makes this sun rise and on the bad and the good and causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what recompense will you have? Do not the tax collectors and pagans do the same? So be perfect, 
just as your heavenly father is perfect and love your enemies. Hmm, powerful. Well, father, that's not natural. As I said the other day, of course it's not natural. It's supernatural. That's how you become Christ-like. And Faustina said, we most resemble Jesus when we forgive. We most resemble Jesus when we forgive. It hurts you way more than it hurts them not to forgive, trust me. Nobody is worth losing your soul over. I hear in the confession all the time, I, I can't forgive, Father. And I always walk them through it. And sometimes they say, Father, I just can't forgive. Well, your soul is not worth losing no matter how angry you are at them. Nobody is worth losing your soul. Nobody. In the end, the person hurt you. Listen to this. Think about this for a minute. You want to be justified. You want them punished. They hurt you. They did you wrong, of course. But if they repent, they will be in heaven. And if you refuse to forgive, you'll be in hell. Who's the winner? Seriously. Who's the winner? Please, if you do nothing else, forgive from your heart. Jesus forgave the very executioners from the cross. And this is where I only got uh, 10 minutes left or 15 minutes left. So I want to finish with the two feasts that are coming up. The exaltation of the cross, which is Tuesday, September the 14th, and Our Lady of Sorrows, which is the very next day, September the 15th. This is Wednesday. Whoever would have expected that a Roman torture tool, the cross, would become the sign of our salvation? You know, we can lose sight sometimes of the fact of the grace that comes from that cross. What grace came from the cross? Anybody? Literal. What literal thing came from the cross? I'm talking literal, tangible, touchable thing. Not just his sacrifice, what literal thing came from the cross? The blood and the water. That's why the image of divine mercy is the blood and water coming from the heart. Well, Father, I thought it came from the side when Jesus was speared in the side. It did. But the spear went all the way through and punctured the heart of Jesus. This is what the theologian, Dr. Robert Stackpole, who works for me here at the shrine, says. He did his doctoral thesis on it. And the blood and the water that came out his side actually came from his heart. So that grace, it's a blood and the water, what Jesus told us is the ultimate grace, which is the key for the conversion of sinners. The conversion of sinners, Jesus has said, is most granted through one prayer. Of all the prayers we can ever do, Jesus said the one prayer that most grants conversion of sinners, guess what that prayer is? Oh, blood and water which gushed forth from the heart of Jesus as a fount of mercy for us, I trust in you. This is powerful. Now, let's look at our next slide. This is the exaltation of the cross, September the 14th. You see it on your slide. Let's not forget it on that day. It's coming up in a couple days. And so as we celebrate this feast on the 14th, which is Tuesday... Shoot, sorry. <laughs> I'm telling you all to turn your phones off and I left mine on. Even if we celebrate the feast of this exaltation, it's important to remember what Christ's passion teaches us. That it's not just about being stoic and sitting on the cross and saying, I can handle this. No, it's realizing we can't do it without God's help. Look at Christ himself. Did Christ do it all himself? 
No, Christ had a lot of help. He reached out to his apostles. Let's look at the passion. In the one 24-hour period, let's look what Jesus did. In the one 24-hour period, he reached out to his apostles, wanted company to console him from Peter, James, and John during his agony in the garden. Instead, he finds him asleep. He begged the Father to take the cup away from him, but he submitted to the will of God the Father. In his human will, he submitted. He carried his own cross, but yes, he asked Simon, the Cyrene, to help him carry it. Veronica helped him by wiping the sweat, blood, and the tears from his face. His mother Mary was there along the Via Dolorosa, the the way of the cross. The women of Jerusalem mourned for him. Anybody of us who are mourning, we know how helpful that can be. Sometimes the greatest support that we can get is to have people share in our suffering, even if it's just empathy and they don't physically do anything. That is powerful. Just having them next to us. You know what adoration is? Adoration is just being next to Jesus. What is adoration? It's consoling the heart of Jesus. You're going in. When you go into adoration, just don't be, Lord, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. Lord, do this, do this, do this. Say, Lord, I'm here to console your heart. You're wounded from our sins. Your heart is full of holes and wounds. Let me repair that. That's why we do the first Fridays to make reparation to the sacred heart of Jesus. And he suffers and he's, he's dying, hanging from the cross, but he's no longer bearing his own weight. He's bearing all our weight. Could you imagine being nailed to a cross and feeling the weight of every human being on your shoulders? You know, I, 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 this is my own, my own view, and this is not church teaching. This is not dogmatic revelation, but I want to share with something with you that I personally believe. I personally believe, and this does not go against church teaching, but this is my own belief. And I used to ask my seventh grade catechism class, how many people live in the world today? Anybody? How many people are alive in the world today? Between seven and eight billion. Does anybody know how many people lived since the beginning of time? Science has a pretty good idea. Yeah. They estimate about 110 billion people. About 115 billion people have lived since the beginning of time. Now, did Jesus redeem every single human being? What about those in hell? Yes, he did. Good job from our Colorado group. Yes, he did. Jesus redeemed every human being who's ever lived, ever will live. Some just don't accept his gift of redemption. Every human being is redeemed. Not every human being will be saved. Now, this is just my own belief. But I believe since Jesus died for every human being who ever lived, let's suppose the world ended tonight. That would mean 115 billion people have lived since the beginning of time. You know, one little tradition, small t, that Father Seraphim used to teach was that the world will end when the number of human souls enters heaven that replaces the exact number of angels that fell from heaven. So if it was a billion angels that fell from heaven, 
when the billionth soul, a human soul that enters into heaven, the world will end. We hope it's more than a billion. I don't know. Now here's the thing. The, let's suppose the world ended tonight and 115 billion people have lived since the beginning of time. I personally believe, because here's my logic. If they were to take all of us here in the shrine and take us outside and nail us to a cross, <clears throat> all of us are lined up, boom, 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 boom. <clears throat> we're all nailed to our cross. I would feel my pain. You would feel your pain. You would feel your pain. Now, emotionally, I would feel your pain maybe, but I wouldn't physically feel your pain. I would feel the pain for me. I would feel the pain for one person. You would feel the pain for you, for one person. But I personally believe that because Jesus died for every human being who ever lived and paid the penalty for sin for every single person who ever lived, and what's the penalty for sin? Death. I believe Jesus, and Brother Mark found a really interesting thing. They believe that Jesus, we were, we were asked if he was nailed in the hand or the wrist, that they nailed him in the hand and the wrist, but it came out the back of the hand. It was done at an angle. Or maybe it was the opposite way. Maybe it was in the palm and then came out the wrist. I forget which way, but it was an angle. And if Jesus died for every human being, I personally believe that he felt the pain, not just for himself, but 115 billion times greater than you or I would. Have you ever fathomed that? Think what it takes. Take one little thorn out in a rose bush and put it to your forehead. I've done that a couple times. Ow! It's the most excruciating pain. Imagine that 115 billion times greater. You can't even comprehend it. You can't even imagine it. This is what Jesus did by dying for us. And so in this, we have so much powerful thing. So Jesus, I believe, that's why the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross is a special feast. It's an exaltation of the ways that God helps us to do his will by grace. Let's look at our next slide, St. Faustina. She said, this is in the diary, number 1032. St. Faustina said, during Holy Mass, I saw our Lord nailed upon the cross amidst great torments. A soft moan issued from his heart. I sa he said, I thirst. I thirst for the salvation of souls. Help me, my daughter, to save souls. Join your sufferings to my passion and offer them to the Heavenly Father for sinners. Basically, he's saying, get on the cross with me. It's not forever. It's a short period of time and then you resurrect with him. We must not let our sufferings go to waste, but turn them to the salvation of souls. Catholic suffering is different than any other suffering in the world. We understand it differently. It takes suffering. Why is Catholic suffering different? Because for Catholics, we take that suffering, we nail it to the cross, we join it with Christ, he elevates it, and then he opens up the gushing waters from the lance, the spear in his side, and lets the blood and water flow out upon the world. 
as a source of grace. Through our suffering, united to Christ's on the cross, the suffering of the mystical body, the rays of blood and water can gush out and enter into the world. That's how you bring divine mercy. That's how you save your soul. That's how you save the souls of your loved one. When you pour God's blood and water out upon your loved one, you're not only saving yourself by pouring it on them, you're saving them. Not you, you're not the savior. You didn't create the blood and the water. It came from Jesus' pure side. Only his passion did. All right, so let's finish now with the next day this week, Wednesday, September 15th, is Our Lady of Sorrows. Let's look at our next slide. This is the slide of Our Lady of Sorrows. Now, I just want to summarize this. She's our model because she was at the foot of the cross suffering with us. Um, Jesus said in Diary 961 that every conversion of a sinful soul demands sacrifice. So we must do it. So let's go back to the end now or to the beginning. You want to end jihad? You want to end terrorism? In order to do that, you want to bring world peace? We need to be offering up our sufferings like Our Lady did at the cross asking her intercession to order, in order to win over the conversion of sinners, terrorists. Do you know September, we're celebrating now the anniversary of the month of 9-11, is the month of Our Lady of Sorrows. Pray for their conversion, the conversion of all of them. It might be strange to think that Our Lady has sorrow, she's in heaven now, but no. She's joined to her son in his self-sacrifice and sufferings on this earth. She has plenty to offer. She does. She has plenty to offer. Our Lady had many, many sorrows. She continues to have them today. And I want to finish with this. You know, a lot of people say that Revelation, do you remember Revelation 12, 1 through 5, talks about the woman who gave birth? I just got two of these letters the other day. How prophetic. And it said, Father, that couldn't have been Mary because in the Bible it says she had labor pains. And I was like, oh man, I forgot about this. We've talked about this in seminary. Let me go back to my notes. I couldn't find it, but Chris Sparks, my theologian, did. And so I got this from him because this is interesting. Mary, did she have childbirth pains with Jesus? No. Well, wait a minute, Father. In Revelation, it says she has pain giving birth. But here's the difference. She's joined to her son and our lady, she's laboring in heaven. On earth, she gave birth to the person of Jesus. But in heaven, she gives birth to the mystical body of Christ, the church. Why does she have pain there? Because we're full of sin. And she gave birth to the mystical body of church to save souls. So when she labored to give birth to Jesus, she had no pain. But now to bring life to the whole church throughout time and history, she labors in pain. Our Lady of Sorrows. The Marian Fathers, we have a particular connection with Our Lady under the title of Our Lady Sorrows through Cabejo in Rwanda. Our Lady's apparitions in the 1980s there to the children. She asked them to tell people to recommit to the seven sorrows rosary or chaplet, you might call it. She promised one of the Cabejo visionaries, if you say the rosary, 
of the seven sorrows and meditate on it well, you will find the strength you need to repent of your sins and convert your heart. Pray my seven sorrows to find repentance. Last few minutes, this rosary of the seven sorrows, also known as the chaplet of the seven sorrows, has been a long part of church tradition. As you pray the prayers, meditate on one of the seven specific sorrows of Our Lady. Sorry, I was going to go through them all, but I'm, I'm running out of time. You know, um, the Simeon, the prophecy of Simeon, the, the fleeing into Egypt. These are the sorrows that Our Lady had. So God wants, us to sa- wants to save us in justice, but his mercy can be given only those who are willing to accept it. And Mary can help. All right, his mercy reaches its full force And then it is welcomed by that heart. So in order to welcome that mercy, we got to participate in his church. And so we have conversion to repent, to turn to him, to be saved. He set up the church for us. And in that, the sacraments offer us this grace. And so the fruits of the sacraments, we must accept. The seven sorrows rosaries help us do this. It offers us a way to work that grace into our habits, into our lives, and reform ourselves. So the chaplet of seven sorrows is prayed in a special rosary that has seven decades, containing seven beads. It goes back to the Middle Ages, and I said it was mentioned by her at Cabejo. And she told them to pray this seven sorrows rosary or chaplet to obtain repentance. So she spoke of it. You need to have mortification, penance but she spoke that you also will have to go through suffering. That's why she's an inspiration as Our Lady of Sorrows. She said that no one enters heaven without suffering. Why? Because Jesus did. She also told us the acts of charity that we need to do to be able to show our love for God by loving our neighbor. And she wanted a chapel built in Cabejo to remember her visit and to pray for church, the church and religious and reminds us that Mary plays a key role in our redemption because she gave Christ his human nature. And so let us see the importance of what is happening this week. It's a perfect end to the anniversary of 9-11. To follow up 9-11 with exaltation of the cross, which those poor people went through, and Our Lady of Sorrows, which we all went through, at that event ties perfectly together. So Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, exalt the cross, unite with Mary of Our Lady of Sorrows. And let us not forget the people of 9-11. Let us not forget that it was for freedom that they died. And let us not let our freedom be taken away. Jesus actually talked to St. Faustina about national sovereignty and our national sovereignty and the defense of our freedom starts with forgiveness and prayer. Amen. Well, thank you everybody for making it through with us. Uh, I do have two quick slides. If you want to get our DVD, Brother Mark can show it up there, our DVD of some of my talks. This is the first 13 talks. It's called Explaining the Faith. You can get it on shopmercy.org or 800 
4MARION, 4627426. And finally, you want to become full of grace? Join us, become a Marian helper. There is no cost. It takes 10 seconds to do. Just visit micprayers.org. Easy to remember, MIC for Marian's Immaculate Conception, micprayers.org. Sign up, no cost, less than 10 seconds, and start receiving many graces from our masses, penances, rosaries, prayers, chaplets, because you'll pray, or excuse me, you'll receive those graces just like you are a member of our religious community. Yeah, can't beat that. And to all of you who lost a loved one or a family member in 9-11, know you're in our prayers. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. Thank you. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign-up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.